thank you to the worship team. Just beautiful, beautiful time of worship this morning. Um, it's my pleasure to uh, announce that the uh, children can go off to Sunday school. Ages three to five, right? Three to kindergarten. And for those serving our kids, thank you so much for your service. Well, my name is Sean LePage. I'm the CBC plant pastor. If you're new to CBC somehow, I'm, I'm still the new guy around here, still learning your names, and uh, I appreciate your patience with that. Um, and it's uh, very exciting to see those roses on the, on the piano, isn't it? Well, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the incredible treasure it is. We thank you for the Spirit's um, moving in the hearts and minds and pins of the apostles to record for us this tremendous treasure. We pray that you would help us to not only rightly understand it this morning, but also to understand how you desire us to respond to it. And I pray that you would be glorified all along the way. In Jesus' name, amen. What are you willing to endure to give others hope? The book of 1 Peter was written by Peter, of course, but this is the same guy when Jesus announced to the apostles that he must suffer, must go to Jerusalem and suffer and, and die, Peter said, never, never will this happen, Lord. And of course, Jesus rebuked him and said, get behind me, Satan, you're a stumbling block to me, for you are not setting your mind on God's purposes, but man's. And so then we have First Peter, written by an older, wiser man who was imprisoned, literally, for sharing the gospel and even eventually martyred, according to tradition. And so for him to write in 1 Peter, that, um, that it is bless, a blessing to suffer is quite a change, quite a transformation. He wrote to uh, many churches, if you recall, to, uh, to uh, a network of churches throughout the Roman Empire, because there was growing opposition to believers in Rome. It's pretty clear that Peter was in Rome and persecution was, was coming because the believers were living a different lifestyle. They were talking of another kingdom. And so at this time, at the time that Peter wrote 1 Peter, uh, Peter describes the persecution 
uh, as, as in its infancy. It wasn't as bad as it was going to get, but uh, he, he described it as accusations and insults, malicious talk or threats, blasphemy, reproach. Soon after, the church would face severe persecution, even martyrdom. But at this time, this was Peter who, this was who Peter was writing to. And so let's read 1 Peter 3, 13 through 22. This is actually one of the thorniest passages in the New Testament as far as difficult interpretation issues. So, you know, I hope you had a good breakfast and because we're not going to be first in line at the Cracker Barrel today. I'm sorry. Just we're going to take we're going to no, I, I'm going to try to finish on time, but uh, it's it's going to be rough. So 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 bear with me. First Peter three, starting in verse 13, we'll read through the end of the chapter. I uh, I typically read the New American Standard, uh, but there are no substantive differences between the many good translations we have today. 1 Peter 3.13 Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled. But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you yet with gentleness and reverence. And keep a good conscience so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. For it is better, if God should will it so, that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God having been put to death in the flesh and made alive in the spirit, in which also he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison, who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Corresponding to that, baptism now saves you, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. So we have two main sections here. Uh, The first is verses 13 through 17, and this is really getting at our response to unjust suffering. And we have here the divine perspective of suffering. The second section is verses 18 through 22. And this is our model in unjust suffering, the perfect example. And yes, that is the Sunday school answer. That's Jesus. And we'll get there in a moment. But under this, this section, 13 through 17, our response to unjust suffering, the divine perspective of suffering, I want to highlight three, three things. First of all, think biblically about suffering. 
That's what Peter asks us to do here, first and foremost, is to think biblically about suffering. He says, and who is there to harm you, verse 13, who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? So speaking, you know, generally and in normal times, people don't harm you if you do good things. Uh, generally, they celebrate that and, and uh, reward you somehow and praise you. Um, but there's an underlying thing I want you to see here. He's, he's encouraging, he's, he's uh, teaching us the, the response of Christians, the, the lifestyle of Christians, and that is to prove zealous for what is good. He's, he's making it clear that this is how we should live. We should prove zealous for what is good. Verse 14, But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, but even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness. So, in other words, there are times, and we all know this, that those who do good suffer for it. Peter clarified what he meant by good in verse 13. Right? So he says, if you prove zealous for what is good. Well, what does that mean exactly? Well, he says here that it's the sake of righteousness. And that's more clear than good. Because proving zealous for what God says is good, for what God says is righteous, now that does bring problems. That does bring uh, difficulties. Proving zealous for what God says is good uh, could uh, very often result in suffering for the sake of righteousness somehow, some way. Because it implies that we will somehow either reject or even oppose unrighteousness. Throughout, throughout church history, even today, uh, many believers throughout the world are suffering for the sake of righteousness. And, and yet Peter says, you are blessed. E even if you suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. So our natural perspective is to avoid suffering at all costs. But Peter says we're blessed. This is just simply foreign to the... Uh, kind of prosperity gospel world of, of American Christianity. If we sprain an ankle, there is no God, so to speak. <clears throat> but the divine perspective is very different. Listen to the words of Jesus in Matthew. Turn with me to Matthew 5. The divine perspective of suffering is very different. And we could highlight numerous passages about this in the Bible, but listen to Jesus here. Matthew chapter 5, verses 11 and 12. Jesus is talking. He says, Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. If he hadn't gone on to, to verse 12, we would say, What? If, if you're really reading, you're really paying attention to what Jesus is saying, you would say, what? No. <laughs> no, I, I, I'm, I'm not blessed when someone insults me and persecutes me and falsely says all kinds of evil against me, even if, even if it's for Jesus. 
But look at what verse 12 says. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Jesus points us to the future. This is eschatological hope. Hope uh, for a, a different reality in heaven. Look, look at another passage. Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Someone taught me to remember that as uh, girls eat popcorn. I don't know. It's stuck. Every time I look for Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, or Colossians, for some reason, girls eat popcorn comes to my head. Um, not even sure that's entirely true. But uh, anyway, that was a rabbit trail. Philippians chapter 1, verses 27 28 and 29. Listen to this. This is, this is amazing. Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. There's the sake of righteousness. Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel in no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. Listen to this. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. Hmm. It has been granted to you. It's a privilege. It's a, it's a blessing, as Peter said. Look at what Peter himself says. Look at, uh, look at chapter 3, verse 12, where right before this passage we're looking at today, Peter says, For the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and his, his ears attend to their prayer. But the face of, of the Lord is against those who do evil. So he's, he's saying God is on our side. Look at 4.14. He says, if you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. We could look at many other passages. The point is that this is the divine perspective of suffering. Could God end it all right now? Yes, he could. And <laughs> Maranatha, uh, come Lord Jesus, do that, please. Um, we have his promises that he will someday end all suffering, all evil. But the divine perspective is that it is serving a purpose now. Good is coming from suffering. And it's very important for us to remember this, that in God's reality, suffering can be good. If it's for righteousness, the sake of righteousness. In God's. So, so you, you do understand that the scriptures are God's explanation of reality. You, you can ignore this or you can deny reality in numerous ways, but this is God's explanation of what is real. And it not only confirms that the world is full of suffering. 
and that God knows about it and that God is going to end it someday. But it also teaches us that that in God's reality, suffering can be a blessing. It can be good. So Peter goes on in verse 14 and he says, And do not fear their intimidation and do not be in dread. Do not be troubled. So uh, do not fear is, is easier said than done. How do we do that? Well, this is a quote actually from Isaiah uh, chapter 8 verse 12. And the point there in context is that we should not fear people. We should not fear what people fear, but we should instead fear the Lord. We should reverence the Lord, uh, which, as we know from Proverbs, is the beginning of wisdom. It's, it's the, the, the beginning of knowledge. And so, the way to not fear, to not be troubled, is to keep our focus on God. To... to to keep our eyes on him, on the one who assures us, as in verse 12, that the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous. That's how we do not fear men, and that's how we are, are, are not troubled. So first of all, in our response to unjust suffering, we should think biblically about suffering. That's what Peter did for his readers here. And secondly, he tells us to prepare wisely for suffering. And again, there are two key ideas in this section. This is uh, verses 15 through 17. Let me read that again. But, so in contrast to fearing people, fearing intimidation, fearing trouble, he says, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence, and keep a good conscience so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. For it is better, if God should will it so, that you suffer for doing what is right rather than doing what is wrong." So sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. This is the key imperative here. Sanctify. Sanctify. It's actually the same word, interestingly. The same word that Jesus used in the Lord's Prayer when he said, Hallowed be your name. It's the same word. It's the same idea. To hallow, to reverence. It's the opposite of fearing people. It's the opposite of fearing Trouble, it's reverencing God. It's reverencing Christ. And, and so we're told to sanctify Christ as Lord. That, that, that means to, to revere Him. It means to uh, literally to set apart Christ as Lord in your heart. It's, it's to make a decision. It's to be intentional about what it means for Christ to be Lord of all. It's making the decision, he is Lord of my life. He's Lord of my decisions. He defines what is good. He defines righteousness. He defines 
what it means for me to live my life. And, and when, we're, when we're dealing with suffering and trouble, we simply say, Christ is Lord. We simply say that it is His decision. Christ is Lord of my life. And that's, that's hard to do. Sanctify Christ as Lord of your hearts. Look, salvation is free. Salvation is a free gift. But as Jesus taught about discipleship, discipleship costs everything. Discipleship is Jesus is Lord. Jesus is, is master of my life. Salvation is a free gift, but discipleship costs everything. And the question is here, will you give Jesus control of your life? Even if it results in trouble and suffering. That's the decision Peter is asking us to make. Well, how do we do this exactly? How do we, how do we make Jesus Lord of our lives? He is Lord simply acknowledging that. It's acknowledging that whatever he allows uh, has been allowed and it ultimately is for good. But look, at, he goes on here in verse 15 and he says, uh, Sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you. So always, the word always means that this principle applies even when we're not suffering. So in our, in our reality, in our context, we're not suffering for the sake of righteousness compared to our brothers and sisters throughout history and throughout the world today. So we don't have to only apply this in times of suffering and persecution. Peter said, always being ready to make a defense. And being ready, uh, the ESV translates that prepare. Uh, get ready for suffering. Get ready for challenges to our faith. Get ready for people to watch you handle suffering differently than maybe an unbeliever would. Be ready. In other words, prepare wisely for suffering. Prepare. Romans 12.2 says that we are not to be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Preparing means study. Preparing means more than just knowledge, it means character and, and, and a steadfastness and developing your character as well. But it, it does mean knowledge. It does mean study. God in his sovereignty gave us a book. That's literally what Bible means. It's simply book. God gave us a book. Seems much more efficient to me to just 
download all that we need to know and understand into our brains. I mean, I don't know why, but God gave us a book. And, you know, just I was just, to, to be serious about it, I think God says, if you want to know me, if you want to really know me, here's a book. Here's a book. You come and study. You pray over it. You spend time in it. You seek me through this book. I think there's tremendous wisdom in it. But being ready means to read, to study, to dialogue in community, helping each other grow in our understanding of what God hath said. He says, make a defense. Ready to make a defense. This is the word, the Greek word apologia. Defense is apologia. It's the word we get apologetics from. And so um, it, is, it is not apologizing for what we believe. It is making a defense. It's explaining to people, helping people understand how we could have hope in the midst of suffering, in the midst of a messed up world. How can you possibly have hope? If you're in the habit of circling or underlining or highlighting things in your Bible, would you please highlight the word hope? I think it's central to what Peter is saying in this entire book. Hope. We need to be ready to make a defense for the hope that is within us. This assumes that we have hope. Peter assumes that we have hope. Uh, look at look at First Peter one three for example. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Look at uh, verse thirteen there in, in chapter one. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Look also at verse 21, or 20 and 21. For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. He's already explained to us in this book, as uh, Pastor Aaron has brought out in the past, he's already explained to us where our hope comes from and why we should be a people characterized by hope. And so here in uh, chapter 3, verse 15, where he says that we should be prepared to make a defense for everyone who asks you about the hope that is within you, Peter assumes that we have hope. He tells us, fix our hope. Uh, why? Why be ready so we might pass on this living hope? We live in a world without hope. And the whole point here is that 
God has provided us with hope. Uh, and this is largely understood in terms of the entire meta-narrative of God, the entire story of God. God's plans have been revealed to us in the Bible. And it's in the context of that story that, yes, the world is messed up, but it's not always going to be that way. Thank God. And how can we have hope? Can we have hope that our, that our enemies will uh, not persecute us, that there will not be persecution in this life? Do, do we have hope that there will not be suffering, that there will be no problems, that we will not groan under the weight of sin? Do we have hope that that's going to happen in this life? We don't. What we have is hope. Look, look at verse uh, 13 again. Prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on... Completely on what? On the goodness of people? On your ability to stay healthy your whole life? Fix your hope completely, verse 13, on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. God's reality... What God has revealed to us is he's going to fix everything. He's going to set everything right someday. Fix our hope on the promises, the goodness of God. Why? Well, so we can endure, but also so that we can pass on our living hope. He's... He's really set this whole thing in the framework of mission. We are to be ready to help others find the living hope that we have found in Christ. Even if that is through someone watching us suffer somehow, some way. And he adds, but with gentleness and respect. Remember what, uh, what was said in, in uh, verses 8 and 9, which, which uh, Pastor Aaron taught on last week. Chapter 3, verses 8 and 9. To sum up, all of you be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble in spirit, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. For you were called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. Go back to the original question I asked. What are you willing to endure to help others have hope? This is what Peter is challenging us with. Are you willing to suffer so that others can have hope? And are you willing to prepare so that as you go through the difficulties of life, or God forbid, persecution. Are you ready to make a defense? Are you ready to explain to people why you have hope? In verse 16, he goes on. He says, and keep a good conscience. This is, this is, um, this is the second major idea here under preparing wisely for suffering. Keep a good conscience. 
Determine that you will not return evil for evil or insult for insult. Um, He says, so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who disparage your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. You know that shame can actually be a good thing. Shame can actually help someone understand their need for Christ. It's, It's a necessary step, I believe, for change. It's for someone to be ashamed if they are slandering or disparaging good behavior. It says in verse 17, for it is better, kind of summarizing this section, it is better if God should will it so that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. And so he returns here to thinking biblically about suffering. Uh, so to, to, to suffer for what is wrong means you violated your conscience rather than having a good conscience, keeping a good conscience. So uh, violating our conscience can result in undeserved, or sorry, deserved suffering. Undeserved suffering, suffering can be a tremendous opportunity for what he calls better. It is better, if God wills it, that you suffer for doing what is right. So keeping a good conscience, that's just simply keeping a short list uh, of, of sin. That's confessing to God on a regular basis and, and, and keeping... Uh, uh, your, your conscience clear of sin. So, um, thinking biblically, preparing wisely for unjust suffering is hard stuff. How do we do it? Well, Peter masterfully turns our attention to the one who is the perfect example, our, our model in unjust suffering, verses 18 through 22. Our model in unjust suffering, the perfect example. Look to Christ. This is the heart of the spiritual life. The imitation of Christ is the heart of the spiritual life. Over and over and over, the scriptures tell us to look to Christ, to look to the example of Christ. Look at what we have here. Verse 18, we have, Peter teaches us that imitation includes suffering. The imitation of Christ includes suffering. He says, verse 18, in in the ESV, for Christ also suffered. Um, There's a little bit of textual uncertainty here. Some some, uh, translations translate this, for Christ also died. That's New American Standard. Uh, It's probably not died. I believe the context... Uh, points to suffering. The whole context is about suffering. Of course, Jesus' suffering did lead to his death, so it's kind of quibbling, but uh, there is that that difference in in translations. Um, The point here is that Jesus is our perfect model. He also suffered and died. Um, Imitation. So, this this is a beautiful verse, by the way, verse 18. It's a beautiful... Uh, summation of the gospel. Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust. That's, uh, <laughs> that's uh, it's completely sufficient. Once for all, the perfect example of suffering for the sake of righteousness. The imitation of Christ involves suffering because of sin. Christ uh, suffered for our sins. He suffered unjustly for 
he, he suffered for the, the just for the unjust. He was just. He suffered for the unjust. And our suffering, likewise, if we're talking specifically about persecution and suffering for the sake of righteousness, we, we suffer too because of sin. We enter into the fellowship of Christ's sufferings, as Paul states it. And so, the imitation of Christ involves suffering because of sin. But he says the just for the unjust, that's vicarious, substitutionary, those theological words, that's what it's getting at, is this, this simple phrase, the just for the unjust. So the imitation of Christ includes suffering unjustly. Jesus did it. Why would we think that we would not need to suffer for uh, unjust reasons? But look at what he says. This is why Jesus did it. So that he might bring us to God. He suffered for the good of others. That he might bring us to God. Give, to give others a living hope. What was Jesus willing to endure to give a living hope? He suffered and died. So the imitation of Christ includes suffering so that we, too, might bring others to God. Uh, he goes on and he says, Having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. So um, the point here is that Jesus' suffering led to victory. It, it led to resurrection. It, it led to life. And so it's important for us, even as we talk about suffering, uh, that the imitation of Christ also, though it may require suffering now, will also lead to resurrection. It will be worth it. So next, he says, it, Peter teaches us that imitation includes proclamation. So first he says imitation includes suffering. But here, in verses 19 and 20, he teaches us that imitation includes proclamation. A couple of the most confusing, um, one of the most confusing illustrations in Scripture, he says, in which he also went and made proclamation to the spirits in prison, verse 20, who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Well, this is a much debated, ver much debated verses. Um, Thomas Constable summarizes it this way. One group of interpreters believes that Jesus went to the realm of the dead and preached to Noah's contemporaries between his crucifixion and his resurrection. Some of these say that he extended an offer of salvation to them, while others believe that he announced condemnation to the unbelievers. Still others hold that he announced good news to the saved among them. A second group believes that Jesus preached to Noah's sinful generation while Noah was living on the earth. They see him doing so through Noah. A third group holds that Jesus proclaimed his victory on the cross to fallen angels. Some advocates of this view say that this took place in hell between his crucifixion and his resurrection. Others, Constable says, believe that it happened during his ascension to heaven. Well, it's a very difficult decision that, that should be wrestled with because the Apostles' Creed, which we say here sometimes, uh, claims that Christ descended into hell. 
so this is a this is a difficult and important decision, interpretation issue. But what we what we find when we study the history of the Apostles' Creed is that it was a later edition, and it's been disputed throughout church history. The best view in my opinion, is that Christ preached through the Holy Spirit, through Noah, to the disobedient before the flood. So look at chapter 1, verses 10 through 12. He says, As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. Look also at verse 12. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you in these things which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. So, uh, the basic idea here is that the prophets of the Old Testament predicted the sufferings of Christ via the Holy Spirit. Within them, Peter says, and those who preached the gospel to Peter's readers did so through the Holy Spirit. So, again, I believe the best view is that the Holy Spirit, that Christ preached through the Holy Spirit, through Noah, to the disobedient of uh, disobedient people before the flood. But, here, but, you know, this view does not deny that Christ may have descended or preached in hell. It simply says that this verse doesn't teach that particular view. And, and, and Peter's point is he's encouraging us to make proclamation like Jesus did in the Spirit to the people of our own time. That... Through us, like Noah, Christ will proclaim uh, salvation through us, just as he did through Noah and the Holy Spirit. Okay, so, so uh, as you can see, that's, that's a, an issue that uh, requires a, a, a lot of uh, uh, study and there are a lot of different things to wrestle with there. But the point is, remember, let's build off of what we know. And we know that he's saying Christ also suffered. Christ also provided an example for us of how to endure our suffering. And, and so he's, he's telling us here that the imitation of Christ requires proclamation. Just as, Christ, just as Noah proclaimed um, the, the, the judgment of God during his time, we too should be prepared to proclaim uh, the, 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 the gospel as well as, as well as judgment. In verse 20, 21, it gets even a little bit more complex. But I think what Peter is teaching is that imitation, the imitation of Christ includes triumph. Peter wrote, corresponding to that, baptism now saves you, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who was at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. And so, this also is a a difficult verse that appears to contradict 
that salvation is by faith alone. But look closely. He says, corresponding to that, um, the Greek word here is antitype. Uh, it, it refers back to the water of the flood. The NIV says this water symbolizes baptism. The NET says this water prefigured baptism. The water of the flood, Noah survived, is a God-given type. It's a picture of baptism, according to Peter. The question we have to answer is, how does the water of the flood correspond to or symbolize or picture baptism? Well, first, water represents death. The water of the flood destroyed all but eight of earth's inhabitants. In the same way, baptism, when we go down into the water, it represents death. The death of Jesus. Identifying with the death of Jesus. And also, proclaiming to the world that the old me has died and I now live for Christ. But in the same way, baptism represents death. Second, like Noah and his family who were rescued by the ark, the believer is rescued by Christ. Raised by faith from the grave to resurrection in Christ. Baptism pictures this same thing. Uh, raised by faith from the grave to resurrection in Christ. I think that's, this is what is happening here. But he says, baptism saves you. He quickly adds, not the removal of dirt from the flesh. So Peter is his, making it clear that he's not talking about the physical act of baptism. So despite the claims of the American, the popular American theologian, Carrie Underwood, um, people aren't saved because there's, there was something in the water. I'm just kidding. I love Carrie Underwood. I, I'm sure she didn't mean it literally. But <clears throat> it's not about the water. Uh, it's not about the removal of dirt from the flesh. That's not what saves. But how does baptism save you? Well, look at the contrasting clause here. Again, verse 21. <clears throat> it says, corresponding to that, baptism now saves you, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but, there's the contrasting clause, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So uh, this is an appeal. This is looking to God and not ourselves for cleansing from sin. This is how I understand this. So a good conscience is a conscience that's free of sin, at least temporarily. So baptism is a picture of being saved from death by the resurrection of Christ. There's not something in the water the person being baptized is saying, Christ has rescued me and cleansed me from my sin. It's a public proclamation of faith. Only God can rescue from sin. Verse 22 is, is the culmination here. He says, talking about Christ, who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. Peter caps off this celebration of rescues, um, the, the, the rescue of, of Noah and his family, the rescue of the believer pictured in baptism. He, he caps off this celebration 
of rescue by reminding his readers that Christ was exalted. Earlier in this book, he brought up the suffering of Christ and said Christ also suffered, but here he does something different. He reminds us that Christ was also exalted. Christ was also exalted. He suffered, but that suffering led to people being saved. That suffering led to your salvation and mine. It led to our rescue. And it also resulted in his exaltation at the right hand of God. So we too can participate in sharing the sufferings of Christ. We can participate in people being saved. It's a tremendous privilege. We can also participate in the exaltation of Christ through our suffering. But also, a subject for another day, the Bible promises our reward and our exaltation with Christ, our glorification. Let me just wrap this up with a few observations. What what did Peter want us to get from this passage? I think there are three life responses that have been going through my head all week long as I've been thinking about this. But again, it's built on the reality that God has revealed. The Bible is God's explanation of reality. These, these life responses uh, assume that you're going to embrace God's explanation of reality. So first of all, have hope within you. How do we do that? Well, hope comes from knowing God's promises. His plans. Many Christians shy away from studying prophecy, but it's about one-fourth of your Bible. About one-fourth of the Bible was prophetic when it was written, so it seems uh, unwise to ignore one-fourth of your Bible. But uh, it, was, it was given to us for a purpose. It was given to us so that we could have hope. Things aren't always going to be this way. We have a certain promise from God that he will fix the mess we've made of his very good world. So have hope within you. Secondly, suffer for the sake of righteousness. How much are you willing to endure that others may have hope? If you join Jesus in his quest, in his pursuit of the souls of men, and the souls of women, if you join him in that quest, which he does invite you to join him, you will suffer. Somehow, some way. Simple things like disappointment, betrayal, heartbreak, but perhaps even other types of suffering. But if you join him in what he is doing in the world, you will face some sort of suffering. How much are you willing to endure so that others can have hope? Many people, perhaps most people, are living in despair because they have no hope. To make a defense to them, to lead them to the hope we have in Christ, will require varying levels of suffering. Suffer for the sake of, of righteousness. Number three, imitate Christ. Imitate Christ. Christ also suffered. He was willing to suffer like no other 
has suffered. The just for the unjust. and, and, And once for all. So that you and I might have a living hope. But he was exalted. We are invited to share the sufferings of Christ now by taking the gospel to the world, by being his church. Um, But like the sufferings of Jesus, our suffering is only temporary. Are you willing to imitate Christ in every way, including through suffering? So do you see Peter's train of thought? If we share in Christ's sufferings now, for the sake of righteousness, we will share in his glory later. Today is the time of suffering. But the great revelation that Peter talks about is coming soon. He says, fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Do you believe that? Do you believe there's a day coming when Christ will be revealed for who he truly is? The revelation of Jesus Christ? If you do, you have hope. A certain promise from God. If you have a biblical worldview, then you understand the reality that gives us hope. And that the stuff of earth is not important. It will rot. But the treasures gained by sharing in the sufferings of Christ, who was at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him, now are an investment in treasure that cannot be lost or stolen. Peter said um, that, that, uh, that suffering tested the genuineness of your faith. It's more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So the, the big choice here is the sake of righteousness. Are we, are we going to join Jesus in the sake of righteousness, even if it requires suffering? Peter says it will be worth it. It will be worth it. Let's pray. <clears throat> Lord, we, we just pray that you would help us to respond exactly as you would have us respond today. I pray for all those who are suffering today. Those who are suffering for the sake of righteousness. Those who have broken hearts or great disappointment because they have embraced your righteousness, your mission. I pray that you would bless them and give them endurance. I pray that you would use us as individuals and as a church to help others, many others, an uncountable number of people to discover the living hope that we have in Christ. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.